In Philippians 1.27, the Apostle Paul tells Christians to live lives that are, quote, worthy of the gospel. Is he referring to something that we must do or achieve to be saved? And if so, how does that fit with Paul's emphasis on justification by faith alone? My guest today is Sinclair Ferguson, and in our interview, he walks through why living lives worthy of the gospel is a biblical exhortation that all Christians must take seriously, and one that doesn't inevitably lead to the sin of legalism. Sinclair serves as Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary and is the former Senior Minister of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. He's also the author of many different books, including Worthy, Living in Light of the Gospel from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Sinclair, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's nice to see you in person this time. Face to face. Face to face. Not cross the Atlantic. That's right. So in the first half of Philippians one twenty-seven, a pretty famous verse that many of us know well and have maybe memorized as children, the Apostle Paul offers what has to be one of the most clear, direct, all-encompassing exhortations in all of the New Testament. And I wonder if you could read that verse for us, and then we're going to sort of unpack it together a little bit. So this is Philippians 1.27. Correct. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Hmm. So for the purposes of of our conversation today, I want to focus on that first clause, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And you call that that calling on our lives as Christians in your new book a forgotten calling. And you go on to write, to live worthy of the gospel of Christ does not rank high on the priority lists of the 21st century church. As you look out over the evangelical church today in both the U.S. and in the U.K. where you're from, What would you say are some of the adjectives, some of the things that come to mind as you think about what would describe or define the church today? Well, one of them, I think, would be struggling, at least in the United Kingdom. You need to look pretty carefully to find a vibrant church. Mm -hmm. So many churches, I think, are struggling. They're small churches. I think there's also a great deal of, of confusion about the nature of the gospel and also about the nature of the Christian life and also actually about the nature of the church and its role and how and what makes it really significant. Hmm. You know, a big, a big element of my own thinking is that the building of the church is at the epicenter of Jesus' vision for his people, Matthew sixteen eighteen. I think almost as Jesus' manifesto for his people. And we've come through certainly a period, I think, probably on both sides of the Atlantic, where the local church has been seen by many evangelical Christians as secondary to other mm. things. Mm. But it's, it, it's hard not to feel that way sometimes, because we look at the local church and it feels small, and it feels inefficient and limited in what it can do. When you look at these global events, we look at these global figures, Christian figures, uh, and we see the impact of their work and their ministry and, and those events. 
and it kind of feels like the local church. Uh, what is that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's been one of the, I don't know, is it a paradox of social media that it has been a platform for the advance of the gospel and exposure to the gospel, but at the same time has also had this, hopefully it's an unintended consequence, but an actual consequence that big is seen, seen now as either normative, mm. that is, that's what we should all have, or it's seen as desirable. And therefore, gone from it, and you can never really see this uh, in social media of any kind. I think the what has gone from it, and not least in the increase of size of churches, and size being seen as a measure of success, is that in my own view, the absolute basic language that describes the church in the New Testament is family. Mm. And if that is a controlling principle, that there are other metaphors for the church, but in my own view, they are actually metaphors. I don't think family is a metaphor. I think family is what the church actually is. Mm. It's the family of God. And that this is true as much locally as it is globally and heavenly. If that's a controlling picture, if that's what I sometimes think of as the prescription that's ground into the eyeglasses with which you view the Christian life, then you become a little cautious about size. I mean, it's possible to be a very large family, but it's also possible that size can be an enemy mm. of family. And I know, you know, when churches grow, people try to do things. They will say, you know, we use these computer methods and these technological methods. Yeah. Or even things like small groups. Yeah, but at the end of the day, what really you are doing is kind of semi-artificial, mm. difficult to pastor meaningfully. You know, I've been minister of, a, of churches of varying sizes, but the key thing to me has been the answer to the question, how do we express that, first and foremost, we are the family of God mm. here, that we are brothers and sisters together, that we have a diversity of gifts? And increasingly, it seemed to me to be almost like the key to understanding our, our impact in a present society in the Western world where one of the most obvious signs of the disintegration of the gospel and the Christian lifestyle has been the dysfunctionality of families. Mm. And my own conviction is that when a, a church really is dominated by that sense, we have a heavenly father, we have an elder brother, we have the spirit of the elder brother indwelling us, we're brothers and sisters together, we're young and old together, then the impact that makes on our contemporary Western society is actually more magnified than it might have been 150 years ago. Because when people are exposed to this, even if they dislike or even hate what they think we believe, they are going to be driven to the conclusion that this looks like what life was supposed to be. Mm where it's safe, and I know the church has failed, but it's safe 
for children to be speaking to older people, that there is a mutual affection, that people give place to one another, that there's a variety of gifts, that there is a sense of absolute devotion to the Father, that all of those elements speak right into the needs of our own society just now and are one kind of window into how it is that the gospel of Christ saves. Mm. Um, I remember years ago when we lived in Dallas at one time, and it was at the time when the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, I didn't actually see it, but Mm. um, when it came out, there was a pastor of a mega, mega church said that this was the greatest evangelistic instrument we had been given since the days of the apostles. And my immediate thought was to say, have you never heard of the church? Mm. You know, what are you, you're pastoring or should be the greatest evangelistic instrument, not because of the, all the different things they do. The programs. Chiefly because of what they are. Mm. Yeah. Why didn't you see that movie? Was it because of a resistance to, to that impulse? Well, I think actually I have a DVD of it, but I don't watch movies. <laughs> uh, I have a low attention span, so I, I I just didn't watch it. I mean, I have some underlying other <laughs> concerns mm. that are, you know, you would understand. Yeah. No, I didn't see it. Yeah, it's so interesting the way that churches often think about evangelism and their, their witness. They think of programs, they think of methods and tools and strategies you do make the case, though, in the book that maybe the primary way that the New Testament seems to envision the church's witness and interaction with the outside world is they're coming to us with questions, wondering about what it is that makes us different because of how they see us living with one another. So what impact would you say that the church's, uh, the broader church's loss of an appreciation for the church as family, for the local church as central to our lives as Christians, how has that impacted this forgotten calling to live lives worthy of the gospel. How are those two things connected? Yeah, now, you know, I think answers to questions like this may depend on where you are, Mm. really, and people of of very different experiences. You know, my background was in a church life where the gospel had begun to disappear when the bridges between the gospel in the church and society— were all still in place. But there was no gospel in the church walking over the bridges. Mm. And when the bridges began to collapse, the attitude of the church members was, these naughty people, that's N-A-U, not K-N-O-T-T-Y, <laughs> those naughty people are no longer walking over the bridge. Mm. And they didn't realize that they themselves had never walked over the bridge. Right. They didn't have anything to bring over the bridge, and um. so their first response was to complain. Mm. And I think that probably is true in many places in the West. It's, I think in parts of the United States, the bridges have really collapsed. In other parts of the United States, where I think Christians may think, as it was in the beginning, as now, it ever shall be, and they don't notice that the bridges have collapsed Mm. and they've not been living the kind of gospel family life that creates those bridges, then 
you know, the bridges are collapsing around them mm. and it will be too late by the yeah. time they they wake up so to any, it. Anytime anyone stresses this kind of thing, the the importance of our lives as Christians, lives together and lives as individuals for the sake of our witness and the gospel. Even when we read passages like Philippians 1.27, live as worthy citizens of the gospel, we can start to feel a little bit uncomfortable. We can start to worry. This starts to feel a little bit like I have to do something to be a Christian. So how do we distinguish this call that even Paul himself is in his own words is giving to us uh, from some kind of a legalistic mindset when it comes to what it means to be worthy of the gospel. Maybe I can go back to this. I I can't remember when this first struck me, but it was certainly reading Peter uh, saying, you know, you should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. And I thought this is interesting because he presupposes that people will be asking Christians questions. And Probably, certainly through the middle years of my life, one of the great evangelistic techniques was for Christians to go and ask non-Christians questions. And to be absolutely honest, I always felt a wee bit nervous about that because Mm. I thought there's something slightly duplicitous about this. You know, maybe it is fishing for men, but if it's fishing for men... um, the bait is not very clear. Mm. It looks as though you're doing one thing when you're trying to do another. And I thought, what a sharp contrast with Peter's statement, because Peter's statement seems to assume that they're asking the questions about Christians and not Christians asking the questions about them. And I kind of came to the conclusion that one of the reasons for that must be because there's not very much about us as Christians that makes anybody ask questions. Mm. And I think that is a real key into the significance of Paul speaking about being worthy of the gospel of Christ. He, d- he doesn't use the term worthy in the sense that I think m- you know many Christians might fear. Mm. He uses the term worthy um, I think I maybe even say in the book in this sense, you know, it's a term that goes back to kind of almost balancing the weights on the pans of a scale. So here is the gospel on the one hand, and your life on the other hand is to be a a breathing equivalent Mm. of the gospel. And it's not ultimately something that you do it's ultimately the Christ-likeness that's created in your life by the ministry of the Spirit. Mm. And so I think one of the things that might be true statistically in evangelicalism, at least I've read this, you know, is the, the relative little difference between evangelical Christians' lifestyles and mm. other people's lifestyles. I mean, one of the things that struck me is how little the New Testament actually says about evangelism. Mm. Why would that be the case? Because it didn't need to say anything about techniques and so on. Here were people who who had heard Jesus say, look, if you're not unreservedly given to me, you are not worthy. Mm. Not in the sense of, 
you become a Christian by amassing the merit, but that unless that's true, your life is out of sync yeah. with the gospel. It's not balanced. It's not. It's not expressive of it. It's not a reflection mm. of it. And therefore, it's not surprising that nobody is asking you mm. questions. In, in the book, you quote Gerhardus Voss, who has this, he's a well-known Reformed theologian, who said, the essence of legalism is to divorce the law of God from the person of God. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Help us understand how that sheds light on the difference between legalism, that kind of mindset, and what you're talking about here. Yeah. At the center of everything is the knowledge of the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, famous Old Testament verse, you know, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, rich man is rich, is strong man is strong. But let him boast in this that he knows me that I am the Lord. And you know, the interesting thing is that is an Old Testament statement about Old Testament believers. At the heart of Old Testament faith mm. was knowing the Lord. Mm. And the same is true of New Testament faith, and it's Jeremiah that tells us at the heart of the New Covenant is they will know me. And Paul interestingly cites the Jeremiah nine passage and Hebrew cites the Jeremiah 31 passage, Jesus speaks about eternal life being not justification, but knowing the Father Mm. and the Son. And so if this is the center of the gospel, the center of Christianity, then the next stage is what does it mean to know him? And in a way, the simple answer to the whole question of legalism is that if if you know who he is, then you know what he's like. And all of the commands of the Bible in one shape or another are saying, this is what I'm like, and I want you to be like this. Mm. And the only way you can be like this is if you are like this. Mm. Now, when it comes to the Old Testament commandments, we can read them in a kind of isolated fashion without realizing that there's a reason why they are negative. They're almost all negative. Mm, don't do this. Don't do this. Because we are spiritual babies. And, you know, I never said to my two-year-old, let me explain how electricity <laughs> works. I just said, you know, there's a cover on that point to stop you putting a screwdriver in there. Yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of protectiveness about it, but enshrined in all of those commandments, as Jesus indicates, and as the, like the catechisms of the churches have indicated, that written into all of these negatives is the positive of the command. Mm. So don't commit adultery doesn't just mean don't commit adultery. It means be faithful to your wife. Don't steal means... Be generous, mm. uh, honor honor your father and mother, which is an interesting commandment because it's all positive. Mm. I think is almost like the baby commandment to a youngster in a family of faith. If they honor their father and mother, are almost naturally going to keep all the other commandments mm. because their father and mother honor these commandments and so on. Yeah. So when you drive all that back, ultimately, I think what you've got in all of the biblical commandments is at the end of the day, actually when Adam and Eve were created, 
they were created with instincts to live this way, and they abandoned them when those instincts were tested. Mm. And that therefore one of the things that takes place in regeneration is the restoration to what we were originally created to be. And we were originally created to function in a way that was in miniature like the way God functions Mm. because we are made as his image. And so we would malfunction if the way we behaved did not mirror in miniature his holiness, Mm. his righteousness, his faithfulness, his Mm. love, his integrity, and so on. And so I think what Voss is saying is that when you detach the commandments, whether they're in positive form or negative form, from the person of God, then they simply become detached imperatives. Mm. They lack the personal goal, which is a character that reflects the mm. character of God. Mm. So I actually, um, you know, I've not, I don't know if I've written about this and I haven't talked about this much. And so in a way, what I'm about to say is self-condemnatory. I think it is one of the greatest tragedies of the American evangelical church. And I think in large measure also the British evangelical church that in our focus on how to get saved, we completely lost the sense of what it meant not to be saved, but to be created. Mm. And so many Christians grew up with very little appreciation of the idea that we are made as the image of God. Mm. And so long as that was true, I think, I'm not saying it was inevitable, but I think that made it far more likely that the law of God would be detached from the person of God. Mm. And then in understanding the whole of Scripture, the imperatives of the gospel would be detached from the indicatives of Mm. the gospel. How much of that detachment, though, is also due to just not only the theological tradition, the Reformed tradition that that often does distinguish between law and gospel and and wants to draw a, a hard line between the two in terms of their purpose and their use in our lives, um, but but even the words of Scripture itself, Paul seems to want to draw some hard lines at times between those two concepts. What are we getting wrong in how we maybe sometimes think about those two things? Yeah, I um, this is a huge question, Matt, but um, my own response to that is to say that the truest Reformed faith did not see the teaching of Scripture in the kind of somewhat narrower spectrum of, for example, Martin Luther Mm -hmm. or that stage of the Reformation. I mean, Luther says things are either law or they're gospel. He wants to put them in two buckets. Yeah. And so you understand why that was true of Luther. You Mm. can see the impact of his own experience. But it, it seems to me that in the best Reformed tradition, the story of the Bible is not law and gospel. The story of the Bible is actually, the way I would put it, and I could demonstrate this from the literature, is the grace of creation as the image of God. Mm. Now, we use the word grace. We've almost defined it in terms of sin. The the Reformed Fathers didn't define it in terms of sin. They defined it in terms of God, his Mm. graciousness. 
so that creation is an act of mm-hmm. condescension. Mm-hmm. His relationship with Adam and Eve, making them as his image. I mean, we are, we are non-existence that he brings into existence, mm-hmm. and he didn't need to bring them into it. You know, and that is, is grace. Grace. Mm-hmm. So, so not all of the Reformed theologians, but you know, there's a whole bundle of the best of them who would speak even about the original covenant that God made with Adam and Eve as a gracious covenant. They didn't call it the covenant of grace, but it was a gracious covenant. Mm-hmm. And I think that needs to be established, that the creation of man and woman as the image of God and all that that means is an act of infinite grace. It's nothingness being brought Mm. into creation to be a miniature likeness of God. Mm. And so the whole story is one of graciousness and promise implied in the statements that are made. Now, that's another long story. And therefore, in order that the man and the woman would grow and would grow in fulfilling their commission to, as I say, garden the whole earth. They're given this little garden and they're told to extend it to the ends of the earth, which for all I know might have taken millennia Mm. of their family, but probably speedier development of technology than there has actually been, that all of this sets our existence within a context of the person of God, the generosity of God, the integrity of God, but then comes the fall. Mm. And that the restoration, therefore, involves in its varying stages, whatever you call them, stages of covenant, even stages of, let's even use the word dispensation because (laughs) the Bible uses the word dispensation, although in my own view, not in the fully developed form of American dispensationalism. But at the end of the day, it is always a a means of Mm. answering the question, how does God restore us to what we were originally created to be Mm. and then take us on to what we were ultimately destined to be? And when we see the Bible story that way, I think we're kind of released from like the antithesis that there seems to be between either it's all grace, period, or it's all law, period, Mm. and it's all either legalism or antinomianism. And all of that then, and I see this, I think I see this very clearly in Paul, all of that very clearly Legalism on one hand, antinomianism on the other hand, is a misunderstanding of the core idea that runs through Scripture. Then, actually, to get to the answer to your question, then what Paul seems to me to be saying when he looks back to the Old Covenant, the Mosaic period, is that he's saying, when you look back on that, a season in God's purposes when, in a sense, there is this kind of enormous rigor of the law. He says in a way, that that's like being a child. The way I illustrate it usually, mm-hmm. I think, is this, to say, when I was in elementary school, I had the time of my life, I loved it. But then when I went to, like, Scottish education is elementary school and high school. 
You know, there are no junior high schools, <laughs> so you go from one, six years in one, or five years in one, six years in the other. Okay. So when I was in elementary school, I loved it. And then when I got to the secondary stage to high school, I look back. So now, now I've got six or seven teachers instead of one. Now I'm studying Latin and French and even Russian and Greek. And this science. is where we know that you grew up in a different continent yeah. than most of so our listeners. I'm studying all these things, and I look back on that, and I think, we were just kept in prison in those days. Mm. And then when I went to university, I've never forgotten this. I think that very early on, my, my English literature professor, who was a Shakespeare expert, gave a lecture on Hamlet. And we had studied Hamlet for several months in, our fin- in my final year in high school. And I learned more about Hamlet in that one lecture than I'd learned in the <laughs> previous ones. I thought, boy, they didn't know nothing there, you know. And it was like a new world to me. And so I looked back on those high school days and I thought, boy, they weren't really up to all that much, mm. you know. And then eventually I get out of university and I think, this is, they were really keeping me, in, they were giving me exams right, left, and center. And in our educational system, it was the last battery of exams that marked you for the rest of your life oh, academically. Wow. Yeah. There was no, you know, adding up things. Yeah. It was You had your it, one shot. It was now or never, so there was tremendous pressure on it. And you were released from all that. And I looked back and thought, they were all a bunch of jailers, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but at each stage, only at the next stage was I able to look back. Mm. I felt liberty. Mm. But I looked back and I saw what looked like bondage. Mm. And that kind of illustration came to me because of what Paul says in moving in that redemptive historical section in Galatians 3 and 4, where he says, in those days we were children under age. We, there was the pedagogue who was making sure we got to Mm. the next stage. Mm. And so when he speaks what sounds like pejorative language about the old, I think we've always got to remember that he's saying that in the light of the Mm. wonderful freedom Mm. there was in Christ. And at the same time then, I think we're able to understand what otherwise would seem very paradoxical that an Old Testament believer could say, I love your law. Mm. It's my meditation day and night. Yeah, yeah. Because, if I can put it this way, that was, it was within the law that he was given to understand what it is that God's grace reproduces mm. in us. Although, and another way I sometimes put it, is he was living in the kind of pop-up picture book version for children. So he couldn't move around without... Am I mixing the materials from which my garments are being created? Mm. Is this the right day? Are we doing the sacrifices properly? It was all, I think of it as a very physical, sensual Mm. world in which the old covenant believer could see these are symbols these can't be the reality. Yeah. So like the argument that Hebrews uses, that if the priest is standing there day after day, this isn't the sacrifice that takes away sin. Maybe an argument that's used in Hebrews, but it's an argument that a real Old Testament believer would yeah. also they would have, resonated with. have been able to see. He would see 
this, you know, this the sacrifice of this animal yeah. can't be the sacrifice that actually takes away sin. And we even see glimpses of that in the Old Testament. I think of Psalm 51 yeah, where David's confessing absolutely. his sin and yeah. says, you want a contrite heart yeah. more and, than the blood of uh-huh. bulls. And he sees, and of course there's something very existential for him about it. This, These sacrifices can't take mm. away this sin. Mm. So, So that's how I think it all fits together and helps us to understand that the mosaic administration between yeah. Sinai and Pentecost, we might say, was all always meant to be an interim measure. Yeah. It was never meant to be final. And an old covenant believer would have been able to see that. Mm. And then as the revelation goes on, the old covenant believer is looking to the prophet like Moses or to great David's, there's this sense, for example, it comes out in Psalm 72 of the kingdom extending, you know, way beyond the kingdom of David and then the son of man or the suffering servant. And Mm. um, yeah, granted those prophets, as Peter says, we're still left with the question, who am I writing about and yeah. when is he coming? Yeah. But there is a there's an increased sense that all of this liturgy and all of these laws that govern us, that somehow or another they're all funneling towards um mm. this person yeah. who's variously described yeah. who is the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. Um so at the end of the day, I think it all, to me, it all fits t- together very comfortably within the principle that when you understand how the biblical gospel works, then you realize why on the one hand uh, there is liberty and on the other hand there is law. Mm. On the one hand there is indicative and on the other hand there is yeah. imperative because the ultimate goal is we've been predestined to be conformed mm. to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And you could add to that, in a sense, so that what we were meant to be in creation, we will actually, mm. ultimately, not just what we were in creation, but what we were meant to be ultimately yeah. in creation is going to be fulfilled for us and in us through Jesus Christ. And it's, a, it's just a great story, isn't it? How much of our struggle as as normal Christians to hold together the indicatives and the imperatives? As you've already said, it, we look around at the church today and we, it, it doesn't seem like, generally speaking, we're doing a good job of living worthy of the gospel in such a way that unbelievers would see us and want to ask questions. How much of our failure on that regard is due to pastors in particular not being able to articulate this dynamic that you've been talking about. You tell the story in the book of a a pastor who was preaching a sermon from the New Testament, and he essentially skipped over all of the exhortations in this passage, only preaching grace and gospel, but seemingly unsure of what to do with uh, the actual exhortations, the commands that are in those passages themselves. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a, I've been a preacher and a pastor and I carry a lot of blame 
And the older I've got, the more I've reflected on James' words in James 3 about not many of you be teachers. Mm. And, you know, we as preachers who preach in public, we can strut about as though we were ourselves God when we're tiny specks of dust, really. And I, I think there's a tremendous cry on the one hand for humility, and on the other hand... I think it may be coming true that while there are ministers who study more and more seriously, I have a kind of fear that there are younger ministers who are actually studying less. Mm. And I've just picked this up recently, and I don't know whether it's true in the United States. I've begun to sense that there are younger ministers who prepare their sermons by listening to other people's sermons. I don't mean like straightforward plagiarism. Yeah. But they'll find out somebody did a series on and somebody else and they'll listen. And at the end of the day, I think what they're doing is cherry picking the fruit of the fruit of the fruit of something else instead of digging into the scriptures themselves. Mm. And if you don't do that latter then at the end of the day, what you've got is a kind of cherry-picked message. Mm. And you're not going to get to grips with the way the Bible and the gospel actually work. Mm. Have you had to fight against the temptation in your own life? You're you're a well-known preacher. Not necessarily to cherry-pick from others, but even to maybe cherry-pick from yourself, you know, where you can kind of, you've got so much experience, you... You can kind of pull something together pretty quickly or easily, and you haven't really done the work in the text yourself. Well, <laughs> speaking about your own, speaking about yourself is really difficult. I find myself sometimes in situations where I think people presume you can just get up and speak. Yeah. And you find yourself in that situation. Yeah. And you're able to do it because. You've got this mass of stuff that is somewhere at the back of your head. And at the moment, my brain still operates well enough to uh, to open up the files. And mm. my, I know my mind works that way anyway. Like Alistair Begg, my friend, talks about all these files in my head. <laughs> and if you say what's in that file, I might not be able to answer you. What I do know is when I click on the file, it will open, mm. and the stuff will be there. Ah, amazing. But at the same time, a really big thing to me in preaching has been the framing of my own spirit to what it is I'm preaching. You know, I know God helps you when you've got these kind of unusual situations, but if I were to preach without that preparation of framing my spirit... Mm. What do you mean by that? So... <laughs> I wish I knew that. I, what I mean by that is, the best way to put it is that it's being worthy of it in the sense mm. that Paul uses that term. It's that my sense of this passage, this message, the intellectually how I think, emotionally, affectively how I feel about it, that these two things should be married together. Otherwise, I'm going to preach the cognitive truth out of a being mm. that has a kind of dissonance mm. with that truth. Mm. So that 
my fear is the message comes, as it were, at this band of understanding and this band of affective resonance, whether it's very sobering or very uplifting. But if I preach something that's very sobering and it's not sobered me, the words and the tune, mm. <laughs> I'm going to be singing the words to the wrong tune mm. as a as a being. Yeah. And I, I know there are people who rubbish this as mysticism, but I am I have become increasingly convinced that when people listen to the preaching of the Word of God over the long haul, they are slowly going to begin to think that God sounds like this. And that's not just the words he's saying, but the way he's saying them. Mm. To use a trivial example, you can listen to somebody telling you that God loves you, and when they say it, they clench their fist. And actually, at the affective level, they're coming down on you mm. rather than lifting you up. Mm. So, C.S., you know this well. You work for a publisher. C.S. Lewis <laughs> says on more than one occasion, you should never tell anybody how they should feel about something because people don't feel about something because you tell them to feel that mm. way. You should describe that something so that they do feel that way. And even, I think even when indicatives and imperatives are understood theologically, I think it's still possible, and I, I think I've heard this in preaching, it's possible to preach in the indicative mood, but at the affect and affections level, actually hmm. the the impact on people is much more imperatival. Mm. It's not so much the magnificence of the love of God that draws out a sense of awe and appreciation. It's that you should feel God loves you. Mm. But unless Christ, the gospel, greatness of God, work of the Holy Spirit, especially the person of the Lord Jesus is held out before us. We're just going to be told how to feel and we're never going to feel it. And then we're just going to feel more guilty. Mm. And what is really bad about that is it sounds as though it's the preaching of grace, but it's actually inwardly, inside, it's actually a form of the preaching of law. Mm. And you know, as Scripture says, the law never works grace. Yeah. And I've, I think there's just been so much evangelical preaching that has thrust us back on ourselves in this way, and sometimes unintentionally, because there has been this dissonance between the cognitive expression of truth and the mode, the affective level at which that truth has been hmm. expounded. You tell the story in the book of two sermons that you heard preached by John Stott, uh, a mentor of yours. You, you, you tell the story of the first time you heard him preach when you, I think you were maybe 17 years yeah, old or so, 17. and the last time that you heard him preach, uh, not too long before his own death. 
I wonder if you could tell us that story and, and what did you learn? What insight did you gain into, yeah, what it means to be worthy and be in sync, so to speak, in terms of what we're saying? Yeah, so the first story is, so I'm 17, I'm in my first term at university, and John Stott came to speak. Actually, he came to speak at the university chapel. But on the Saturday night, the InterVarsity group had him to speak. And he spoke from Philippians 2, 1 to 11. And he, he began... This is the with, Christ hymn. Yeah, he yeah. began with a question. He actually asked a question. I mean, he maybe said it was pleasure to be here and so on. He was very <laughs> English gentleman. And even across the border, and he said, and he had a distinctive way of speaking, partly because of his background, also partly because of where he'd been educated. Um, his accent? His accent, yeah. the way he pronounced words. Cambridge, upper middle class Cambridge graduates sometimes tended to speak slightly out of the corner of their mouth. <laughs> so his question was, what is the secret he spoke this way, what is the secret of Christian unity? <laughs> and, you know, we're all sitting there expecting yeah. him to tell us, but yeah. he was actually asking He's actually question. waiting for you. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, I was really shy, Matt, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, <laughs> I am not putting my hand up here, <laughs> you know. And I still remember somebody, some idiot answered the question <laughs> and got it wrong, and I, I want to crawl under the seat. <laughs> and then he's in eyes says, the secret of Christian unity is humility. And he goes on to expound Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Mm. Now, there's a kind of midpoint to this story because the, when I was ordained, I was 23, I was ordained, and uh, just around that time, my boss, senior minister, had he had arranged for John Stott to come to do a minister's conference in mm. the church and to preach on three evenings in the church. And my job, uh, so I'm 23 now, six if, years later, yeah. my job is to look after him. Huh. Drive now, him around? Drive or? him around, you know, see he gets there. Had conversations, I still remember some of the conversations. But fast forward from that, so that would be 1971. 1982, we're about to come to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And I get a letter from John Stott. I'd spoken at a conference with somebody you knew. The person had said, listen to the recordings of this, these addresses that this Scotsman gave. And he, out of the blue, he wrote to me. Huh. He had prayed for me during those 11 years. We'd hadn't, we hadn't met. I'd had one letter from his church, All Souls, asking me to go and work there. That was quickly dismissed because that was across the border. <laughs> and here I'm finding myself so, going So you already said going, no to him Going once. to the United States. Oh. And he wrote this very sweet letter to me. He'd clearly, he remembered Dorothy's name. He'd been, said he'd been trying to pray for us. And he hoped I wouldn't stay in the United States too long. <laughs> and then oddly enough, I saw him more frequently when in the United States. Oh. But then... Towards the end of his life, I was at a conference that he was speaking at, and I can see him. He was having these TIAs, these really miniature, momentary strokes. How, how old would he have been at this point, do you think? Oh, he could have been in his 80s, maybe. Okay. Yeah. And he would just say, I'll be all right in a minute, and just stand there. Hmm. 
In the pulpit. In the pulpit. Just stand there, um, waiting for it to pass. <laughs> and I, I mean, he was known as basically, I know people who said, I can never read any of his books on a passage and preach on it because there'll be no other way to preach it <laughs> than what he's done. Yeah. I mean, he had really very considerable expository skills. I remember thinking, he's standing there and he doesn't know what to say next. I mean, most preachers have known that experience, but not him. Mm. And he's standing there kind of naked before these people, humiliated in a way. And I remembered, what is the secret? The secret is humility. Mm. And it was just like, it's just like a picture of it. Mm. And... I thought that, you know, I, as I've reflected on it later on, I thought, isn't this amazing that he was really, this was an illustration of the gospel. You know, I'm not one to think that Francis said, go and preach the gospel, use words if necessary. But this was John Stott worthy mm. of the gospel. There was the gospel, the humility and humiliation of Christ. And, mm there was a miniature mm. reflection of it mm. in him. And it's that same principle only embodied in every dimension of our lives that I think is really important and maybe not much emphasized. And I understand if that isn't emphasized in seminaries because in seminaries they're really just helping men to be able to function as preachers. Mm. But as you grow as a preacher, as we all, I mean, like Paul says to Timothy, you know, make sure everyone sees your progress. And, you know, I've sometimes, when I've thought about that verse, I've been standing in the pulpit thinking, Does, is there any soul in my congregation <laughs> that's ever even crossed their minds? He's progressed from what he was like mm. five years ago. Mm. And I think all of that is part of, maturing as a preacher in a way that it's everything about your preaching that communicates the gospel. Mm. So that while Paul isn't talking to preachers in Philippians chapter 1, like most things, there's a kind of narrower application to preachers. Mm. And since I'm one of them, obviously, I want to hear that application. Yeah. Well, Sinclair, thank you so much for taking the time today to help us better understand this call on all of us, preachers included, to live worthy of the gospel. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Sinclair Ferguson on Living Lives Worthy of the Gospel. For more, be sure to check out his new book with Crossway, Worthy, Living in Light of the Gospel. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.